So welcome to all of you who are the smartest, who know the best, yeah, who are the perfect ones, right? Yeah. Okay. So we'll we'll try and and get some dharma into our minds. You know, it it might be hard because sometimes the the mind is like. Uh, you know, when the earth gets really dry, it cracks. Yeah. And it's very hard to dig anything. Mm. So you can't plant flowers. Yeah. And the Tibetans say that if uh, they always say, well, the grass grows in the valleys, not on the peaks. Um, but I was thinking, you know, we're not supposed to lie. We have a precept against lying. And, you know, we are the best, aren't we? Yeah? That's not exaggeration or lying. Oh, you don't believe me. <laughs> Interesting expressions. <laughs> Okay, so let's start with imagining the merit field, the space in front. I don't need to describe it every time. You people should know what it looks like and describe it to yourself. It's very important before we take refuge that uh, we have a humble and a receptive mind. And when we have confidence in the three jewels, because we know their qualities, we have that kind of faith, uh, faith and trust and confidence, then we kind of automatically approach taking refuge with uh, a sense of, of humility that we really need the help of the three jewels, that uh, samsara isn't just okay, but it's, uh, it's something quite serious that we have to deal with and we need help. 
But let's create our motivation with a sense of humility. So we shouldn't have a mind that says, Oh, I am so great. I am going to lead all sentient beings to full awakening by myself alone. So we shouldn't be puffed up like that. But also, we shouldn't go to the other extreme and say, Oh, I'm never going to generate bodhicitta. I can't enlighten even myself, let alone all the other sentient beings. So finding the middle way involves stopping comparing ourselves to others in all the various ways that we do that. And instead, having a sense of self-acceptance that accepts who and how and what we are right now and knows that we have incredible potential. And we want to use that potential to be a benefit to sentient beings and to the Dharma. So if our mantra is, I am the servant of others, then that's that kind of humble mind that has self-confidence. So humility and confidence go together. And with that, we can generate the aspirations connected with bodhicitta. So we generate bodhicitta.
So people often confuse humility with low self-esteem. They're very, very different. Yeah. And I think when we have low self-esteem and are exaggerating our faults, then we go to being arrogant as a way of trying to convince ourselves and other people that we're really great. Yeah, so that low self-esteem and arrogance go together. Yeah, whereas humility and self-confidence go together. When we have self-confidence, we don't need to prove ourselves. When we're arrogant, that's what we want to do, is prove ourselves. So uh, earlier this week, the EML folks had a couple of um, discussion groups about some quite interesting topics that probably push some buttons. Uh, Did the one on authority push buttons? Yeah. How about the one on resistance? When you have issues with authority and, and resistance, how are those related to arrogance? Is there a relationship? Yeah, what's the relationship? Venerable Pende? Yeah, she was nodding her head vigorously. <laughs> so I knew she was been thinking about this. So I think um, resistance. Uh, so, sorry, could you ask again? Yeah, when we have resistance and authority issues, usually arrogance is somehow associated. Yes. So what's the association? Yeah, I think that the reason we have. Um, uh, issue with uh, resistance and, uh, and authority is because we think like, I am the best. I, I am smart. Why should I have to obey? I have to follow your advice or guidance or your order. I don't, I want to do whatever I want. So that is the resistance. Yeah. Yeah. And what's the relationship between authority issues and resistance? I think it's, it's the same. It's like I'm res- I'm, I, I don't want to obey or follow what you, what you want me to do. I want to do whatever I like. Yeah. The thing with authority issues is some people do it with, yeah, resistance. Like you said, I'm going to do what I want. Forget you. Other people are like, oh, yes, whatever you say, you know, I, I, I'm going to be teacher's pet and uh, do whatever is said because I can't think for myself. I can't make my own decisions. Please tell me what to do. But behind that is resentment and a sense of obligation. 
Ah, resentment. Yeah, in like what way? Yeah, I, I, I have to do because the fear of authority, fear of uh, 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 punishment. That why they, yeah. But then behind that is, uh, yeah, a lot of resentment. Yeah. So there's resentment because you're afraid of getting in trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then you're also wanting somebody to tell you what to do because yeah. you can't decide yourself or you're afraid to decide yourself. I think it's the contradiction right there. <laughs> but then we just do it. It, sure, it does seem contradictory, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. Tell me what to do because then I'll be secure. I know I'll be doing the right thing. Uh, people will approve of me. Yeah. I'll be the best student. I'm the most humble one in front of the guru. I saw this sometimes, you know, people just like, you know, the high lamas come, and, and normally these people, my goodness, yeah, it's like, some of the most arrogant um in my in my arrogant opinion <laughs> i was going to say in my humble opinion but no it's in my arrogant opinion you know but when the they're in front of the the lama you know stick out you know with the tibetan isn't it lasso lasso <laughs> yeah whatever you say i'll do it do it. And then as soon as they leave the Lama and they go with the team that is organizing the, the event, then it's like, you guys do this, do this. <laughs> yeah, that's quite interesting how we are. Yeah. Yeah. But you can see how... Uh, you can see here how so many different things are related because you can throw into this mix attachment to reputation, attachment to praise and aversion to blame. Yeah, that's in the mix with resistance, with authority issues, with arrogance, with low self-esteem. It's a whole cauldron of these these afflictions that kind of, you know, work together uh, to cause us a, a big mess in our mind. Isn't that, yeah? When your mind gets really confused sometimes and you're in a really bad mood, is this the kind of stuff that's going on? Yeah, inside. I'm being bossed around, but I know what's best. Why are they doing that? But I don't feel secure knowing what's best because there's other people who are judging me. So I better ask what somebody what to do. But I don't want to do what they tell me because they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> I should be giving them some advice. Do you see? It's all it's totally contradictory mess. Yeah, 
And then we come out of it totally confused, and we can't make a simple decision about anything because we're so afraid of doing it wrong and be aff- being motivated by afflictions. Yeah, have you ever been like that? You know, you have to make a decision, but you're so motivated. There's such a hodgepodge of afflictions in your mind. You don't know what to decide. So you stay in that state of confusion for however long you feel like it. Yeah, and it's a miserable state, isn't it? Yeah. Are, are you... Do you know the state I'm talking about? Just massive confusion inside. Yeah. Should I do this? Should I do that? I, 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 I. It's all about I. Yeah. You notice that when we get stuck in making decisions? It's all about me. Where shall I go? What shall I do? What should I study? Do I want to be here? No, I want to be there. But what is best for me? Yeah, it's like, what's best for you? Chapter (laughs) 8. No doubt about it. Go to chapter 8 and it'll help you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Nante is it's kind of like a a a psychology book, you know, whatever like messed up state you're in, um he get, he can give you an antidote to it. But then you go I don't want to practice that antidote. Yeah. When I'm jealous, I'm supposed to rejoice? Oh, come on. Yeah. How can I rejoice when it's unfair that they got those advantages and I didn't? Yeah. These people are discriminating. The Sangha has impact. Partiality, hatred, fear, and ignorance. Yeah, that comes in the Vinaya a lot. When when the Sangha doesn't agree with uh, what a monastic is doing, it has to admonish them. And then so often that person responds with, the Sangha has impartiality, hatred, fear, and ignorance. Why should I listen to you? Yeah, we have that one too, don't we? So it's not just one person we're resisting, it's the whole Sangha community. Nobody knows what they're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Shariputra, yeah, Mogaliana, Subhuti. Yeah. You guys don't know anything. Yeah, try that visualization. Yeah, you have the the eight special arhats or the eight special bodhisattvas who were also in the in the Pali scriptures arhats. Yeah, 
you have them there. And, you know, yes, when you feel a little bit puffed up or have a little bit of resistance, imagine them in the space in front. You're going, who are you guys anyway? What are you now? Yeah. That that can be a, a, a good thing to to make us a little bit more humble. Yeah. Unless you really have the chutzpah to tell off the arhats and the bodhisattvas. Yeah. If you have that kind of chutzpah, you know what chutzpah is. Okay, so now the equality of samsara and nirvana. It's all equal anyway. Samsara, nirvana, they're the same. There's no good, there's no bad. Yeah, it says equality of samsara and nirvana. So I can have the two together. I can have whatever I like in samsara and whatever I like in nirvana. Sounds good. And I hear Buddhist practitioners almost talk like that sometimes. You know? There's no good, there's no bad. It's all the same in emptiness. Well, that's true if you've realized emptiness. Yeah? And if you've realized emptiness, you have tremendous respect for the law of cause and effect and the law of karma and its effects. Because you know that because even though things are empty, or put it this way, because things are empty, they function. Cause and effect exists. Yeah. But when we don't understand emptiness, then we really like that. No good, no bad. I was at a conference of Western Buddhist teachers. This was way back in the 90s. It wasn't the one in Dharamsala. It was the one at Spirit Rock. And my goodness. (laughs) Yeah, my goodness. And there was one person there, I think she had studied Dzogchen and so she was frustrated with something, so she stood up in the middle and she started throwing zabotons. Not 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 the the round one or zafus, but the zabotons, the big ones. Okay, what's happening? <laughs> you know, what are you trying to say? Yeah. You guys There's no good. There's no bad. What are you talking about? The discussion was about um, the scandals in the Buddhist community. This was a time when all those scandals were coming out, so we were discussing that. Yeah. Yeah. Lama Zopa had a a really good way to kind of hit that. He also, oh my goodness, he also knew how to teach to really on your uh, your arrogance. 
he knew how to do that very well. And you were sure, you know, how can you say that? How can you think like that? Uh, you know, he, he didn't say, oh, I'm just, I'm joking. You know, it sounded like he meant it. And I still wonder, you know. Uh, so how do you react in those in those situations? Can you think for yourself and disagree with your teacher? Or do you have to agree, agree with your teacher on everything to make sure you're not wrong? You're all sitting here like... <laughs> Interesting question, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a lot of it comes from the misunderstanding of Tantra. Uh, people so much misunderstanding of Tantra, so much misunderstanding of what emptiness means and how you look at at the world when you've realized emptiness. Oh, it's all empty. Whatever. Whatever. It's all empty. You kill somebody. You don't kill anybody. It's empty. No good, no bad. It's poison, Uh, very poison. Okay, so let's get into the equality of samsara and nirvana and see what that means. Are they equal? So from the perspective of their ultimate nature, all the afflictive phenomena of samsara and all the purified phenomena of nirvana are equally empty. Okay, so so phenomena have two natures, their conventional nature, their ultimate nature. Yeah, from the viewpoint of their ultimate nature, which is how they actually exist when you analyze and look for what they are, okay, then you find that they're empty of inherent existence. But when you don't analyze and you just take appearances for what they are, yeah, then everything appears truly existent. And uh, the Aryas know that's a false appearance. Yeah, the rest of us go along with it. We might say, oh, yes, it appears truly existent, but it's empty. But actually, we, we don't always act like that, you know? That piece of chocolate cake, yes, it's empty. I can analyze. There's no goodness in that chocolate cake. It's just a bunch of crumbs. Yeah, who wants to eat a bunch of crumbs? They're not going to make me happy. It's empty. Yeah. But the chocolate cake appears 
So it exists conventionally, and it functions, and it brings real happiness. So I'm going for a piece of it. Yeah? So we can say the words of it being empty, but when it comes to when the appearances of this life are so strong that we just automatically think that that's the way things exist. Yeah. And we're constantly befuddled by the the appearances of this life. They seem so real, so fixed, you know, they're not, they're not disappearing every moment. They're not in constant flux. Yeah. They don't exist just because their causes and conditions exist. They're real. And I'm real. And I'm the best one. <laughs> or, if I can't be the best one, I am the worst one. Yeah. But one way or another, I stand out. Okay. So, from the perspective of their ultimate nature, the afflictive phenomena of samsara and the purified phenomena of nirvana are equally empty. This is the context of the expression, the equality of samsara and nirvana. How are they equal? Their ultimate nature both lacks, of both lacks inherent existence. This is also the context of the expression of the unity of samsara and nirvana. If we don't understand what the, these things mean, it's like the unity of samsara and nirvana, what? You know? I've been, I've been studying Dharma for how many years? And they tell me I'm in samsara and I need to get out of samsara and, uh, and actualize nirvana. And now you're telling me that they're united? Huh? You know, are the, the first three, you know, the, the first two scopes, the first three scopes, you know, are, are they all just a bunch of hogwash? Yeah, because when you practice, you know, creating the karma cost for a good rebirth, or creating, you know, virtue for a, um, you know, to progress on the path to our hardship or to progress on the path to bodhisattvahood, yeah, we're still buying into, most of us are still buying into Inherent existence. Yeah. And then they say, oh, samsara and nirvana are united. But wait a minute. You've been telling me until now they're quite different. Okay. So this, this is the, how so often in studying the Dharma, we, and this has been coming up a, late, a lot lately, how we read certain terms or certain passages, and we assume that we know what the words mean, and we assume we know what the concepts mean. 
and we take them literally, but so often um, in in the original sources, yeah, uh, you know, they leave out a lot of words. <laughs> yeah, what Geshe-la was describing on Thursday, yeah, about conventional truth and ultimate truth like that. I mean, so many passages we find. Yeah. So this is why it's very important to have teachers who explain these passages to us instead of thinking, oh, I can read it and understand it. Yeah. When, once we've studied it, then we can maybe read some of the things and understand them. But some of the passages are really difficult. Okay, so it's also the context of the expression, the one taste of all phenomena. One taste of all phenomena. <laughs> what, are the, what are they talking about? Okay, and similar phrases found in sutras and tantras. So Nagarjuna mentioned this in Treatise on the Middle Way. Hari Bhadra spoke of these, the equality of samsara nirvana uh, in his commentary to the Ornament of Clear Realizations. And Sankapa uh, explained this in his elucidation of the five stages of Griya Samaja. Griya Samaja is one of the tantric practices, yeah. From the perspective that the emptiness of the mind is called natural nirvana and that this emptiness of the mind exists while we are in samsara, it is said that samsara and nirvana are not different. Okay, The ultimate nature of samsara and nirvana is the same. It is the one taste of emptiness. In this context, that's the key, in this context, it is said that if one realizes the nature of samsara, one actualizes nirvana. Yeah? So if you realize that samsara lacks true existence, then that understanding of emptiness yeah, is the true path that helps bring about the true cessation. So we actualize nirvana. But it sounds funny, you know, doesn't it? To, um, if you, I realize the nature of samsara. Well, the nature of samsara, when you study the, the four truths, yeah? What is, what's the nature of samsara? It's impermanent. It's dukkha by nature. Huh? And it's selfless. And all the things we think are beautiful are foul. But nirvana is good. And it's bright and it's pure and it doesn't have those four traits. So if I understand the nature of samsara, then that's not the nature of nirvana. 
Yeah. How many natures does samsara have? Is samsara confused? It has one nature in some situations and another nature in other situations. Okay? When we talk about samsara being impermanent, dukkha, all these things being of samsara and being afflictive phenomena, how is this afflictive? It's minding its own business. Yeah? It's not criticizing anybody. It's not jealous. It's not arrogant. How come it's afflictive? It doesn't have a mind. Why, why is this considered an afflictive phenomenon? Huh? Karma? Our mind. Our mind. The perceiving mind uh-huh. is afflicted. Okay. So the mind that perceives it is afflictive. And also in our human realm, you know, the th- our environment. Our karma has something to do with our environment, too. Yeah, and that makes it afflictive. And this was created by probably a person with afflictions. Yeah. But it's afflictive because our perceiving mind, yeah, can look at it and make it the most beautiful thing on the planet or the worst thing on the planet. Yeah? So it becomes an object that generates afflictions. But what about the yogis? They say that yogis, whenever they go places, it's all pure view. So what are the yogis seeing? When they look at this, what do yogis see? During one of the interviews with His Holiness for for the, the book, I asked that question. You know, what do the yogis see? I mean, they have pure view. So, you know, are these afflictive phenomena? Are they not? Do they, you know, does something look dirty? Does a dirty dish look dirty to a yogi? Or do they, what does it mean to have pure view? Yeah. So there ensued a long, long conversation all in Tibetan. With His Holiness and Samdang Rinpoche, and there were a couple of Geshis there, and they're talking and going back and forth for I don't know how long. Yeah, the translator is kind of doesn't know what to say, and you know because they're going so fast, and I'm sitting there, you know, um, and then the conclusion was, <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> They were laughing hysterically at the end. And the conclusion, we don't know what the yogis see. (laughs) Yeah, I was so waiting for that answer. You know, because I had been collecting questions that Westerners have, and that one comes up a lot. Yeah, so I we'll get the answer now, you know. Uh, no. <laughs> there were a few of the topics that we discussed, you know, in the interviews, and that was the conclusion. Yeah. When we talked about Shigpa, 
Remember Shikpa? Yeah, the having ceased of things. Yeah, so it came up one time. You know, me, I'm, I'm the one. That, I'm like Shariputra, you know, in the, in the Heart Sutra. All he did was ask a question. Me, I'm the fountain of questions. Don't know anything, I just ask. Okay, so I said, does a Shikpa have a Shikpa? Is there a Shikpa or a Shikpa? Lots of discussion. The conclusion? We don't know. (laughs) Did this ever come up on the debating ground, Kashila? Yeah? If the Shikpa has has a Shikpa. What was the the conclusion? Each one has its own Shikpa. Huh? Each one has its own Shikpa. Each Shikpa has its own Shikpa. So, so then the world is full of in, infinite, uncountable shikpas. But good thing about the shikpas, they don't take any space. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> There'd be a big problem if they did. But when a karma ripens, which shikpa ripen? Which shikpa? ripens, just the one right prior to the ripening, or all the other jigpas starting from the karmic cause? At any given time, there will be only just one shikpa. No, because each shikpa has a shikpa. No, but that's, they are all sequential. Yeah. So at any given time, it will be, there will be just one series, one lineage, or one, one continuation shikpa. Of, of a particular shikpa. There's one continuation, but a continuation has many shikpas. Not at the one given time. No, but, they but um, yeah, but all the other ones haven't ceased. No, well, they have. Ceased. Yeah, for each for each karma, for each karma, <laughs> karma, for each karma, there will be a series of its own shikpa. Yeah, its own and shikpa. For each for each of them, it, it would have only one shikpa at one given time. No. and and even they do not take take up space. <laughs> Oh, but I, a continuum isn't a continuum is one thing, but it's made up of many things. Sequentially. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but there's many things. But they say when the human being attains awakening, the donkey that 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 human being was five thousand eons ago also attains enlightenment. Yeah, because they are the same continuum. Yeah. Yeah. So the donkey, the mouse, the grasshopper, yeah, all the other beings, yeah, but they don't even exist now. They're they're just past phenomena, yeah, with their shikpas <laughs> hanging out in space. <laughs> Good thing also about shikpa is donkey's shikpa and person's shikpa are not not different. <laughs> Uh, no, except one is the shigpa of the donkey. The other one is the shigpa of the shigpa of the donkey. But they're all shigpa, so shigpa, shigpa-wise, they're all one taste. <laughs> <laughs> but they're different shigpas. No, shigpas don't have any any shape or something that we could call it's different from this different. It's just sequentially different, but not... They're conceptually uh, different. Sequentially, conceptually, 
Yeah, but, but, but not in different. terms of shape, number, like that. Yeah, but they're still different. <laughs> People know what a shoot pay is. Yeah. You forgot already. Okay. Um, so from the perspective that the emptiness of the mind is called natural nirvana, and that this emptiness of the mind exists while we are in samsara, it is said that samsara and nirvana are not different. The ultimate nature of samsara and nirvana is the same. It is the one taste of emptiness. In this context... It is said that if one realizes the nature of samsara, one actualizes nirvana. Okay. So that emptiness is of samsara is called the natural nirvana. Okay. That is untainted. But, but, you know, I mean, how can emptiness be afflictive? It's the ultimate nature of reality. It's not. It's not afflictive, but it has obscurations. And you remember when we went through this section before of the the empty the emptiness of an afflictive mind? Yeah, because it's the ultimate nature of an afflictive mind. Yeah, because that mind is afflictive. The emptiness of the mind isn't afflictive, but it's obscured because it's the emptiness. That emptiness is pure of inherent existence. It's never been tainted, but it is obscured because it's the emptiness of a samsaric phenomena. Huh? By what? Because the is the object, in this case the mind, the mind is obscured by the two obscurations. So the emptiness of that mind, it's natural nirvana, but it's not nirvana, and it's obscured. Again, just like the mind needs to be purified, so does the nature, the empty nature of the mind. We had a long discussion on this one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's the expression. You got the expression right. What are you talking about? Yeah. You keep telling me emptiness is pure. Emptiness is untainted. This is called natural nirvana. Now you're telling me it's obscured and it needs to be purified. Make up your mind. <laughs> Isn't that because you're talking about different aspects of one phenomena? They're one nature, that mind, and the emptiness of that mind. It's just because of their association? Yeah, it's, it's the ultimate nature of that mind. So if that mind is polluted, then the emptiness of it becomes polluted. But if you look at, at the emptiness of that mind from another way, yeah, it is naturally pure because you can't contaminate emptiness. 
perspective. Yeah, perspective and I don't know, something to do with conceptuality, maybe. Yeah. But it's interesting to to think about. Because I, I remember when we were working on, on this with the book and, and this thing came up about the emptiness of the mind needs to be purified. And I nearly had a hissy fit. <laughs> you know, it's like, no, no. <laughs> you know, I'm sitting in front of His Holiness and these geshes going, no, it's, it's pure. And they say, no, when the phenomena that it is the emptiness of is polluted, that emptiness also. It's polluted, but it's not polluted. But you're not purifying the emptiness, you're purifying You're purifying the mind, and by purifying the mind, you purify the emptiness. Yes, That's but, what they say. So if you to purify the emptiness, it means the emptiness has some aspect of pollution. But you're not purifying the emptiness of the afflictive mind. You're purifying the afflictive mind. Yeah. But still, they, somehow, because it's the emptiness, the ultimate nature of that afflictive mind. But you're not doing anything to that emptiness to purify it. Yeah. It just but, gets purified. Yeah. But you, you certainly better purify the mind it's associated with if you want the emptiness purified. Well, emptiness is a negative phenomena. How do you purify a negative phenomena? Yeah, that's what I was saying too. You sound like me. I thought you were purifying the positive phenomena. Yeah, you are. But in purifying that, you purify the ultimate nature too. I can understand you purify that and then it, it, it gets purified. It gets purified. But I, you're not purifying. You're not it, doing anything to the emptiness. Yeah. Are you doing anything to the mind? To the afflicted when mind. You re- when you realize the emptiness of the mind, are you doing anything to the mind? Well, you're removing the, the afflictions. Yeah. Your realization is re- removing the afflictions. But the realizations and removal of afflictions are two different things. Yeah. It's one is yes, getting like you want to take over. Yeah. I don't know. It's because mind is emptiness, emptiness is mind. Mind is not other than emptiness, emptiness is not other than mind. Therefore, when mind gets purified, its emptiness has no other choice but to be purified together. But then you could equally say you purify the emptiness, and by purifying the emptiness, you would purify the mind. That's not the way to work. No, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. How come it works in the reverse? Doesn't work, yeah. Pardon? The words were, you could say the words were, but the phenomena was actually. Yeah, emptiness is form, form is emptiness. Yeah, the words work. Yeah. But what in the world does it mean? 
Okay. Venerable, uh, mm-hmm. this comes in the context also, this part about, where, part about whether emptiness gets purified or not. Mm-hmm. I kind of like her way of taking it, saying it gets purified, not that it has to be purified. It mm-hmm. needs purification. Uh, but nonetheless, it does get purified. Yeah, progressively purified. Yeah. And it's seen in the equipoise. Yeah. So there, it's getting in purified. Seem to be, seem to be a case of the person seeing it being purified because of the lens being clear. Now he's getting, he's he or she is getting the picture clearer and clearer, and it looked like the picture has diminished in the dirt, dirt with which it was appearing. Mm. So in that eye, the emptiness progressively is appearing more and more purified. Yeah, but it was never impure to start with. It was? <laughs> it was never impure to start with. Yeah, it was never impure, impure to start with. It was, it was the mind that was impure, Yeah, and it has no other way but to see it in the impure form. Yeah. But it's just the way the words work, it sounds strange. It wasn't impure, but it's getting purified. To that person, not to everyone. Not right. Not to everyone. Yeah. My mind, even though it may be purified, but it may look as unpurified to others. But mm-hmm. to the one who, in whom the purification has taken place, now to everything it looks, not just emptiness. Emptiness happens to be what appears in the equipoise, and therefore during the equipoise also it begins to see that degree of purity. Mm-hmm. But even when he or she comes out of it with that purity, whoever he or she looks at, everything looks now more pure, pure than before. And that's the illusion-like appearance. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. Okay. No, it's, it's really something to think about, you know. What is the relationship between all these things? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So we start, talk about the different stages of the paths and grounds as the bodhisattvas are deepening their understanding of emptiness and are purifying the different levels of afflictive obscurations and then the cognitive ones, would that be somewhat going along or coinciding with this purification of the emptiness of that mind as they get into the subtler, the 81, this, and the small of the small, medium of the medium? (laughs) It's talking about this purification of this mind. Right, right. That's what Geshe was saying. You know, as you shave away all those different layers of afflictions, then how how the emptiness appears to you is much clearer. But it's but on the other hand, you know, once you've realized emptiness, I had a big debate with somebody about this, as you go up through the boomies, your understanding of emptiness does not get deeper, but it has more power to eliminate the afflictions. But it's still the same, from the point of view of it realizing the ultimate nature, it doesn't change. 
from the point of view of its ability to eliminate obscurations, it does change as it goes through. From the mind that's, that is um, in equipoise on that emptiness, the appearance of the emptiness itself gets clearer as a purification happens. Is that what I just heard? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, well the, I mean, no, in equipoise, the emptiness appears pure. I think it must be after you come out of equipoise. You can't say emptiness appears impurely in, when you have direct perception of it. So uh, this <laughs> is this is a new new thing that Prasangika Madhimika is bringing in. Uh -huh. So for them, the ultimate truth is not just emptiness. Yeah. Even the cessations are ultimate, 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 truth. Real, ultimate yeah. truth. It's a matter of whether one sees the cessations to be emptiness itself, which in which case they need to be just emptiness, but that's not the standard Prasangika Madhimika position. It's just a matter of individual adherence kind of differing in their position of whether cessation is emptiness or not. But in terms of its being ultimate truth, uh, there's no defeat. Mm -hmm. So during the ego poise, unlike in the case of all the other tenet systems in the Prasangika Madhyamika, from the ego poise, from the first ego poise point, of, point onward, mm -hmm. all of the ego poises see emptiness. And in seeing emptiness, there's no difference. Yeah. But in seeing the sensations, there's a difference. Mm -hmm. And the sensation yeah. it sees on the emptiness, not outside of it, because it on the emptiness, mm -hmm. or along with the emptiness. Indeed. So that's why yeah. the degree of purity you see attached to the emptiness increases. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so emptiness gets purified, but it was, never, it was never impure. And as you, as the mind gets more powerful to overcome the afflictions, then the the true cessations actually you accumulate more true cessations yes yes yeah cessations you accumulate yeah. build on so in a way it may be this way of saying maybe better emptiness appears purified increasingly mm -hmm. because of the the afflictions having been purified yeah but it, it, that that's from one perspective, but then you're left with saying, oh, you mean uh, like the first Bhumi Bodhisattva, uh, emptiness uh, appears impure, it isn't totally pure, because it, the appearance gets purified. So that means you've realized emptiness directly, but you're not really seeing it correctly. Yeah. It's... <laughs> yeah, it, it's like seeing, looking at the same thing, but with the tinted glass. Yeah. As you polish it again and again and again, you see it clearer, 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 clearer. Yeah. Not that the thing outside has become any purer, um, but it has appeared. The, but the mind is the subjective mind of yes. apprehending it has become pure. Yeah. And that appearance is only uh, personal and private to the person yeah. in whom that purification has happened, not to others. Yeah. <laughs>
So then uh, a person who has skill with Tantra and at the time of death and they're able to access this fundamental innate mind of clear light, that mind is got such a lack of afflictions that they're able to see a very purified they, 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 you uh, can this would be a very pure but you have to have realized emptiness before in order for your extremely subtle mind at the moment of death to identify the emptiness that's appearing to it there's a big discussion about whether emptiness appears to that mind or not for if it's a mind of an ordinary being some people say emptiness appears. Some people say it doesn't appear. Some people say it appears, but it's so quick they don't recognize it. But, but it's hard for me to imagine as, say, it's one of these very skilled persons who stays and took them. What are they doing? <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. like their, their mind is realizing, their mind breathing. is realizing emptiness. <laughs> and because you, anything that you turn your mind to, is going to seem empty, as yeah. what you just said? No, I think because, because that mind is so subtle, all the conceptual minds, which are where the afflict on the level of afflictions, the, they are, they, you know, when the, uh, because of the winds dissolving and the mind absorbing, then those levels of afflictions are gone. So it becomes more powerful to realize emptiness with that fundamental innate mind of clear light. But as far as I understand, at least when I think of it, you have to have realized emptiness beforehand. Otherwise, we all would have realized it. We've died gazillions of times. Yeah. And we, we haven't realized emptiness at those times. So they're utilizing that. Yeah, they're utilizing that mind because the mind with which you realize emptiness makes a big difference. And the emptiness is the same, but you, you get what? I have to tell you a joke. Okay. <laughs> this reminds me of um, when they first started doing arthroscopic surgery on the knee. Uh -huh. I remember when that happened, and it was a big deal because you used to get these long scars and it took months and months to heal so what happened was mary decker slaney one of the best runners in the world got an arthroscopic surgery and two weeks later she won this big race and then everybody was getting arthroscopic surgery thought that they were going to be able to go and out and win races afterwards <laughs> it's kind of like that you know we all die and we think oh, we're all gonna <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah but but if you think about it you know you can have a realization of emptiness with the conceptual mind and with a non-conceptual mind just talking on sutra level the object is the same but the mind realizing that object is is quite different and has and has very different results yeah 
And then when you add to that, the, 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 according to Sutra, that mind realized emptiness is subtle, but when you compare it to what subtle means in Tantra, you know, the tantric subtlest mind is like way beyond that. Yeah. 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 You you got to step in if I make a mistake here. Yeah. So. Yeah. I didn't talk about the extremely subtle mind. It's great to talk about that. I have no idea what it is in my own experience. You have to laugh in saying that. I what? You say you don't know what it is. You have to break up laughing. Oh, ha <laughs> Okay, well, we've done two paragraphs. Maybe I should continue. Um, <laughs> since samsara and nirvana are different entities conventionally, they may be called the manifold. Manifold means many. Yeah. In that their ultimate nature is the same taste, emptiness, it is said that the one taste is manifold and the manifold has one taste. Okay. So the one taste of emptiness is manifold in that Emptiness is the nature of many, many phenomena. Okay. And the manifold has one taste. All phenomena have the ultimate nature of emptiness. Okay. Okay. This means that the emptiness, uh, okay. This means that emptiness is the nature of all the manifold phenomena of samsara and nirvana. And all these manifold phenomena have the same ultimate nature, the emptiness of inherent existence. In other words, from the perspective of the sub, uh, substratum, the objects that have this empty nature, phenomena are many and varied. But from the perspective of their final nature, they share the one taste of emptiness. So you see the the words from the perspective of are is coming quite a bit in my every paragraph here. Yeah. So how you're looking at it. Understanding that samsara and nirvana are equal in being empty of true existence is important for ordinary, unawakened people. They're talking about me who grasp both samsara and nirvana as truly existent. When such people view samsara and nirvana, they don't just see them as bad and good on the conventional level, but grasp them as inherently so. So samsara is inherently bad. Yuck. Nirvana is inherently good. Okay, and then we're told, but they're the one taste. But how can one be bad and one be good? And they still are the same taste. Yeah. So again, it depends whether you're talking from the conventional perspective or the ultimate perspective. 
Such grasping diminishes, okay, when we're grasping them as inherently existent, such grasping diminishes our confidence in being able to free ourselves from samsara and actual actualize nirvana. This is because our minds not only highlight the faults of samsara, but also see them as fixed and unchangeable, as if they could never be abandoned. So when we grasp at samsara as bad and the afflictions as bad, we're seeing them as inherently bad, not just conventionally bad. Yeah, when we see things as inherently bad, then they have that nature and that nature never changes. Yeah, and since we can't, you know, we get confused because between conventional nature and ultimate nature, we think that badness is the ultimate nature. Yeah, something some sense to you. It's like when you get down on yourself and you really start being critical. Yeah, and it's like I'm so bad and I can't do anything. Well, no, 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 no. If somebody comes along and says, "Oh, that's just on the conventional level," do you believe them? No, you don't understand. I am really bad. I am totally afflictive. I can't do anything right. Okay, because that's how we're holding things. How they appear to me is how, in my exaggerated, with my exaggerated projections, how they appear to me is how they exist. And we believe that. That's what I was saying. Well, you know, the appearance of this life is so strong. It just appears like that. And like, of course, how else would things exist? Yeah. What I see is how they are. Yeah. And then, you know, we decorate it a bit, a bit. You know, this person is, they, they not only are criticizing me, which is, you know, we're, it's, the criticism is inherently existent, and those sound waves are criticism. Okay, so you can begin to see those, just those projections. So it's not just inherent existent, but it's also criticism, not just sound waves. And it is deliberately said by that person just to get me. So we just have layers and layers of projections and we believe all of them. And it all starts with thinking that something exists with its own inherent nature. Yeah? And this happens, I mean, our whole day is just full of this stuff. Yeah? Every time you get the little, a teeny weeny bit irritated with somebody, that's what's going on in the mind. Yeah. And once we just get a little even teeny bit of like, I want this, you know, that's what's happening. And we believe the whole thing. Yeah. When you begin to get some idea of this, even just some sketchy idea, then you begin to feel like, I'm really messed up. <laughs> You know, I really need help. Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, please. 
you know, how my mind sees something is totally unrelated, not only to the ultimate nature of something, but very often even its conventional nature. I don't even see that correctly. Yeah. But, you know, I am the most intelligent and the smartest person around. <laughs> yeah? And it just shows even more how screwed up we are. Yeah? It's just amazing when, when you look at it. Like, oh, wow. Yeah? And then somebody tells you, oh, just pray to the Buddha. You'll be okay, you know. Praise the Buddha for what? You know? What? Buddha can't go in there and flick some switches and, you know, turn off my ignorance. Oh, I gotta do that. I don't have the slightest clue what I'm doing. Anybody ever felt like that after a meditation session? Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. So that is a good meditation session. When you come out feeling like that, that what I perceive is totally, has totally nothing to do with reality, that means you're making progress. Yeah? Because you're finally getting, you know, something that the Buddha's trying to get through our, our thick skulls. Yeah? So we shouldn't feel like, oh, woe is me, I'm so screwed up, you know. But it's like, oh, yeah, woe is me, I'm still I'm very screwed up. But that isn't my inherent nature. And it can be removed because on page whatever, it says the afflictions are adventitious. Yeah. So then you got to look up what the word adventitious means. You know, it's kind of near, <laughs> it's in the di dictionary near supercalifragilistic exotious. Yeah, adventitious, doesn't it sound like it's on the same kind of word? Yeah. Yeah. Somebody, yeah. Yeah. Geshela, do you know supercalifragilisticexpialidocious? Uh, <laughs> uh, then we, we got to show him Mary Poppins. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Good old Mary Poppins. Okay. Um, she was the, the nanny. Mary Poppins was the nanny. I'm not getting movies. Okay. okay. Sometimes I get movies mixed up. <laughs> yeah. But I just, she had an umbrella, right? Yeah. But it's not like the umbrella that the Buddha has. Yeah. Yeah. We we have a banner and an umbrella. But Mary Poppins, she doesn't have the banner. And she has the wrong style of umbrella. <laughs> but 
but she flies, right? Yeah. She comes only when the wind changes direction. She comes only when the wind changes direction. Okay. <laughs> I believe you. I'll look for her. <laughs> yeah. There's Mary Poppins coming. Okay. So understanding that samsara and nirvana are of one taste. Uh, yeah, okay. Did I? Fin I didn't. Don't let me go back and finish that paragraph. Okay. So such grasping diminishes our confidence in being able to free ourselves from samsara and actualize nirvana. This is because our minds not only highlight the faults of samsara, but also see them as fixed and unchangeable, as if they could never be abandoned. Similarly, we see nirvana as independently good and thus too exalted for us to actualize. Yeah, nirvana is too high. It's too difficult. Yeah, remember? You know, the kinds of laziness. Yeah, I can't do it. The path is too hard. The result is too high. So that justifies why I can just sit back and watch cat cartoons and eat potato chips all day. Because there's no way I can change. Yeah. So you see there how grasping an inherent existence is the root of our laziness, too. Mm -hmm. So understanding that samsara and nirvana are of one taste counteracts the grasping that binds us to samsara. Seeing both of them as empty of true existence, we become confident that however many faults samsara has, they can all be eliminated, and that all the excellent qualities of nirvana can be actualized. It is a matter of stopping the causes for samsara and creating the causes to attain nirvana. Saying samsara and nirvana are equal does not mean that being in samsara is the same as being in nirvana. Yeah, those are very, very different. Okay. Um, what happened here? So saying samsara and uh, nirvana are equal does not mean that being in samsara is the same as being in nirvana or that we do not uh, need to try to cease samsara or try to attain nirvana. Conventionally, samsara and nirvana are different. Yeah? The basis of their emptiness are different. But the emptiness is the same. Except one emptiness is obscured and the other emptiness is not obscured. But the emptiness is the same. But it's a, one's obscured and the other isn't because one mind's obscured and the other isn't. Okay. Conventionally, uh, yeah. Okay. Mind in samsara is one trapped in dukkha by afflictions and karma. A mind in nirvana is one that has generated the true path 
and actualize the final true cessation. Although samsara and nirvana are said to be equal from the viewpoint of their ultimate nature, em- ultimate nature, emptiness, on the conventional level, each has its own distinctive features. Samsara is to be nir- abandoned and nirvana is to be actualized. Some people may glibly say, samsara and nirvana are the same. Good and bad don't exist. Awakening is beyond such dualistic distinctions. And on that basis, they ignore ethical conduct. Yeah? And you will hear people say that. Okay? This may sound well and good, but the moment their stomach hurts or they are criticized, these people scream, this is bad, stop it. This holiness really gets us. Yeah. To avoid such dilemmas, it is important to study and correctly understand the meaning of some of the enticing phrases in the scriptures. Okay, yeah. Can I clarify um, on page 285 when it says samsara and nirvana are different entities conventionally? Yeah. And then 286, it says that they are um, different in terms of being different bases, having a different basis mm-hmm. that... The, when it says different entities, it's talking about time-wise is a different entity. For example, if mm-hmm. Shariputra, the moment before he attains Arhatship and the moment after he attains Arhatship, so mm-hmm. it's the same continuum. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, physically it's the same entity, but then time-wise is a different entity in that that uh, the uh, non-Arhat Shariputra and the Arhat Shariputra, let's say it's 6 o'clock, 6 or 1, is two different entities. Is that what it means when it says it's different entities conventionally? Yeah. Entity there means it can mean nature or substance or object. And the, you know, this and this are different entities. Okay, so samsara and nirvana are different entities, yeah. In terms of one person being in samsara and nirvana, that's the time-wise. But just if we talk about samsara and nirvana, on the conventional level, they're different things, yeah. Two cups sitting here, you know, they're different, they're not the same. The, the way we use the word same and different in, in philosophy is not our, our usual way. In regular conversation, you know, uh, the two cups sitting side by side are the same. But they aren't the same. They're two different entities. So this is philosophically or ordinarily? What? This. So when it says different entities here, it's philosophically different entities or ordinary uh, understanding of different <laughs> oh, No, entities? philosophically, they're different objects. Yeah. Samsara and nirvana are two different things. 
on a conventional level, they're two different things. They're not the same thing. Okay. Their ultimate nature is the same. But if you're talking about the same person. It's only the same person if you're talking about the general I that include, that it uh, includes all the different persons in one continuum. But you can also talk about all the different persons in the continuum. As different entities. Yeah. So this is referring to yeah, because time-wise, the, there are different entities. But also, right now, samsara and nirvana, in the same time, they are different entities. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, are your samsara and your nirvana occurring right now in this very moment? No. So they're different entities. Yeah. They're different phenomena. They, they have different names. They refer to different things. Yeah. Shariput, Shariputra, before he attains uh, arhatship and after he attains arhatship, conventionally speaking, we say it's the same person. Philosophically speaking, yeah, it's different people because one is an arhat and one isn't. Yeah. Realization-wise, they're different according to their realizations, and those realizations do exist at different times. One time, I was with Lama Zopa, and it was Deer Park Summer Teachings, and we were talking something about how young lamas, oh, we were talking about Sirkum Rinpoche, and, and young, uh, you know, who, his previous life and, and now this life. Okay. So, uh, so Rinpoche was saying, uh, you know, well, this, you know, it's just the same person. And then Geshila had been teaching how they're actually two different people because he, the whole conversation about the, the, the general eye and the specific eyes, you know, and Geshila had just been teaching that and the Lama's office is the same person. And we just burst out laughing, you know, because yeah, conventionally, yeah, it's the same person, but Boy, the present circumrimbache and the previous circumrimbache, everything about them is very different. But they exist in the same continuum. Yeah, like the donkey and, and the person. Yeah. All of our previous donkeys are going to get enlightened when we get enlightened. Yeah, do those donkeys exist? They do not exist now. But they do exist. <laughs> There's all sorts of fun things like this you learn. <laughs>
Yeah. Okay, so we better uh, dedicate <laughs> while we still know our name and <laughs> yeah. But this is the kind of thing that thinking about really stretches your mind and helps you to look at things from a variety of perspectives. Yeah. And it also helps to get the dandruff off. <laughs> Because they're going like this all the time. What are they talking about? 